final week into Jonah. Um, it's a fascinating read, Jonah. It's so, I feel so misunderstood. You know, we, we look at the book of Jonah. There's four chapters in it. Oh, by the way, good on you for being here, by the way. It is a long weekend. I didn't realize it was a long weekend this weekend. And I figured that only be half the church in. But actually, I'm really impressed. Thank you. Well done. Give a pat on the back to the person next to you. It's good to be here. Um, so the first three chapters of Jonah, the ones that we really kind of think it's all about a whale and it's all about Jonah and, you know, and Nineveh. And then the past part, it's all about a worm and a, and a tree. And, and, and we actually miss, I think, the key factors about what this book's about. The first part is all about God. First three chapters are about who God is and what he's about. The last chapter, chapter four, is actually about you and me. Or in this case, it's about Jonah, but it's about you and me. And so this morning's going to be a little bit difficult because I'm going to be hammering home a few points that might be close to the bone. Ready for it? Fasten your seatbelts, throw your tray tables away. Here we go. Anyone know um, where this place is? Has anyone? Let's see if anyone has an idea. <laughs> it's that small little town. Where is it? What about this one? This is the actual town itself. On top of it, there's a little monastery slash fort. Now, it's a place that most of you have most probably never heard. I'll point out to you where it is. Nope, San Marino's off to the right. Paris is a little bit further away. Okay, Kiwi geography, right there in a... <laughs> um, <laughs> um, this place, you don't know, but it has impacted what happened in this little place. It's only got a population of about 3,000, but it has impacted us for the last 1,000 years. And most Christians have never heard of the place. Most Italians have never heard of the place. The place is called Canossa. Has anyone heard of that? One. What's it famous for? No, no, it wasn't the council. It happened, actually, the anniversary is four days from now, the 25th of January, 1077. Well, you're getting close. We'll get to it in just a sec. You are actually hitting it, and I'm really impressed with you, Mur. Very impressed with you. Well done. Okay, there were two people that met at this place, Pope Gregory VII and the Holy Roman Emperor Henry IV. They met at this place in 1077. But before I get into what happened at Canossa, I've got to give you just a quick run-up, what's known as the road to Canossa. You see, when Christianity kind of started, it started in the shadow of a massive empire, the Roman Empire. And as a belief, as a group of people, they were kind of under the thumb for a very long time. People didn't like them. Uh, they were persecuted quite a bit. And they just kind of did their thing. But doing their thing forced the empire into a point where actually now the majority of people in our empire are Christian. So around 313, I think it was 312 uh, AD, 
uh, Constantine became emperor, he, he won a civil war, and he had declared himself a Christian. And at that point, everything changed for Christianity. Now they had, well, a benefactor that would look after them, and they could live in relative peace and do their thing. Now, over time, the Roman Empire split. It went west and east. In the, in the west, it was Rome. In the east, it was Constantinople. And then around about the 5th, 6th century, the Roman Empire in the west collapsed. And all of a sudden, the benefactor, this emperor who was kind of allowing Christianity to do its thing and, and being protected to kind of openly worship the way they wanted to do things and all, gone completely. Now, the Roman Empire didn't stop at that point. It continued in the east, in Constantinople, in fact, the people of Constantinople referred to themselves as Romans, and they still had emperors. And for a while, for about 200 years, the Eastern Roman Empire was protecting the Western Roman Empire. But so much was going on for Constantinople, they couldn't look after Rome, nor did they really care about it, because they had you know, the rise of Islam, they had the steppe people from Eurasia coming in, and all of a sudden they had to look after their own. And so they abandoned the Western empire. So the Christians at that point had to make a decision. Who's going to look after us now? Like the Israelites, they wanted a king. So the Franks have become quite popular at this point. Um, the French don't like to, to say this. The Franks were originally a Germanic people, barbarians. Their seat of power was in Aachen, which is in northern Germany today. And they had conquered a good portion of what is now France and Belgium and the lowlands. And a guy named Pepin, who was a soldier, a general, his father's name was Charles Martel. Uh, Charles Martel, Charles the Hammer, he stopped, or he's been contributed as the one who stopped um, the Moors from going beyond Spain. Now, he was part of this Frankish empire run by the Merovingians who were falling apart so he decided to do something. He thought, how can I take power? So he went to Rome and he talked to the Pope. At that point, the Bishop of Rome had become kind of the center of Christianity in the Western Empire. And he said to them, would you support me if I became king of the Franks? And the Pope was thinking, ooh, we've just lost support from Eastern Empire. We, we need someone to look after us as Christians. Well, if I support you, you're going to support us. Oh, absolutely. And there became the first Holy Roman Emperor, Emperor Pepin. Now, you might not have heard of Pepin very much, but you would have heard of his son. His son was Charlemagne, or Carlemagne. And Charlemagne, in the name of Christianity, conquered all of, well, basically most of Europe. He conquered the Saxons. He went all the way down. He took over the whole Frankish Empire and made it huge, he faced off with the Vikings, who were basically the Danes and the Norse, and converted a lot of them. And he did it with a sword. So Christianity all of a sudden grew, and it was run by two very influential people, the Pope in Rome and the Holy Roman Emperor. Now, this gave some stability and some sort of peace. But over time, the Carolingians, just like the Merovingians, they kind of fell apart. And then for the first time, a non-Frankish emperor became emperor, and his name was Otto the Great. He was a Saxon. And the Saxons are far more pragmatic. 
and his line lasted right up until Henry IV here. At this time, Pope Gregory VII was this pope, his, his actual name was Hildebrand, and he wanted to reform the church. He felt that, you know, some things had gone amiss, priests were marrying, and how dare they? They shouldn't be marrying, they shouldn't be sharing a bed with a woman, that's ungodly. And so he put all these reforms in place, and he wanted to reform the relationship with the Holy Roman Emperor, who was electing his own bishops. Now, the emperor didn't want to share power, so they had a bit of squabble between them. And that squabble ended up with, for the first time in history, the pope excommunicating the Holy Roman Emperor. Now, Henry thought, well, I don't care whether he wants me or not, but the problem was the people turned their back on him, and he realized, oh, there's actually a bit of power in this excommunication thing. So one day, Pope Gregory was heading north. He was going into uh, southern France to meet with some cardinals and bishops, and he heard that Henry was coming after him. So he freaked out. He stopped in Canossa and basically barred himself up in this monastery, uh, basically hoping that um, Henry will pass by. Except Henry showed up, but he showed up not with an army, not with any pageantry or anything. He showed up in sackcloth. And he waited at the gates for three days and three nights until the Pope gave in. They hugged, made up, and they drew out a plan for what we know as today as the separation of church and state. And if I put it bluntly, this is where really the hypocrisy of Christianity kind of began to really formalize, where we separate the secular from the sacred. This was really the point in which it happened before. It didn't just start then, but this is when it was formalized. Anyone know this guy? Martin Luther. Fast forward a few centuries, we come to Martin Luther, who... In 1517, he nailed the 95 Theses on the front door of the church in Wittenberg. It wasn't the first time he did it. It was the third time, I think. Everyone ignored him. He was a bit of a loudmouth, you know. He must have had Italian blood in him, I think. He put these theses on, but there happened to be a passing bishop who saw him, pulled him off the door and sent him down to the Pope. The Pope was like, who is this guy? And that was the beginning of the Reformation. Now, Martin Luther was very strong about the separation of church and state to the point that he felt he could have two different lives. In this time when the Reformation occurred, the world went a little crazy. The uh, German princes didn't want to be paying taxes to the Holy Roman Emperor, didn't want to be paying taxes as well to the church. So they wanted to separate completely from both. And in Martin Luther, they found someone who had just created a way of doing that. They were his political benefactors. So even when they committed atrocities, subduing the peasant revolt, which killed thousands of poor people who were just wanting more bread, Martin Luther said, those are the laws of the land, got nothing to do with me. His counterpart in Geneva, John Calvin, was even worse because he held two hats. 
He was a magistrate, and he was a priest. And he could easily separate the two. Now, this had ramifications, obviously, if you've read anything about history within a few years of the Reformation, the worst war that Europe had ever seen before World War I occurred, the 30-year war, as something like two-thirds of the German population was butchered during this time, and it was a war between the Protestants and the Catholics. Basically, it became political at the end of it. It's a bit sobering, isn't it? Fast forward a little bit further. The impact of these decisions. We come to this guy. Does anyone know who this guy is? I love the hat. The hat's cool. No, close. One of the most famous European statesmen. His name is Otto von Bismarck. In 1871, he unified Germany for the first time. And for the first time, Germany became a country. Because up until then, it wasn't. He was Prussian. And by the way, just on a side note, if any of you are into like Spartans, and anyone read about the 300, if you want to see a more modern version of Spartans, you've got to read about the Russians, or the Prussians. The Prussians were wholly geared to war. It was all about soldiers. Two-thirds of their national budget was spent on the military. They had the same ideals, the same way of living as the Spartans did. And out of that came Otto von Bismarck. As what he called blood and iron, he unified Germany. And at the Reichstag in 1871, he made this comment. What you were referring to, Murph. We will not go to Canossa, neither in body nor in spirit. Referring to that fateful day when we separated church and state. For the Prussians, there was no separation. And so for the Germans, there will be no separation. We are one. Fast forward to today. Think about how our relationship as Christians is with politics and power. Think about how we look to the benefactors. Even if we're separating secular and state. In part, we are challenged because we want our way of living. We want what we feel needs to happen. But that's been history all along. And it's not just with us Christians. I'm pointing it out because it's us. But every nation... Every people group have acted the same way in relation to power, in relation to wanting their will to be done. But as Christians, there's something radical that happened to us. And his name's Jesus. Rather than our will be done, whose will? Thy will be done, Lord. God's will. Rather than be first, I'll be last. Rather than save my life, I forfeit my life. Which leads us into this last chapter 
of Jonah. Where identity is formed for all of us, including Jonah, by power. What happens when we allow our wants and desires to become rule of law, nationalism, law, forcing people, and our identity is formed by that. This is Jonah. I'm using the message version of the Bible for those of you who are curious. I just think it's really cool the way Eugene Peterson makes it, uh, translates the Bible in this. Here's Jonah. He's furious because, as we saw last week, God did not destroy Nineveh. And like I told you last week, Nineveh was not a nice place. If anyone deserved to be destroyed, it was these guys. So Jonah was furious. He lost his temper. He yelled at God, God, I knew it. When I was back home, I knew this was going to happen. That's why I ran off to Tarshish. I knew you were sheer grace and mercy, not easily angered, rich in love, and ready at the drop of a hat to turn your plans of punishment into a program of forgiveness. So God, if you won't kill them, kill me. I'm better off dead. I would rather not live in a world governed by God like you. That's what he's saying. Because forgiveness means giving up everything that for many of us has formed our identity. Our anger, our frustration, the injustice. Well, if I didn't have that, what would I have? So, this part of the chapter, this chapter four, rather than it's about God or Jonah, it's about you and me, and it's about this thing called grace that I think over time has kind of taken a back seat in the way we express who we are. And first off, I need to tell you this, grace is an amazing thing. It really, really is. We see it in God forgiving the Ninevites. I mean, really? A political power that was in charge, uh, uh, a nation, an empire that was around for 2,000 years and everybody hated them. Everybody hated them. They were awful. Grace is an amazing thing. Um, Let me share this with you. God said this, what do you have to be angry about? What's your problem, Jonah? And sometimes I've got to look in the mirror myself and ask, what is my problem? My sister and brother-in-law are in town, the family, and I took them into, into the city. And as I was driving out of Nainai, you know Nainai, right? I get to a roundabout. I'm, I've got the kids in the back. I'm driving around. I come around the corner. I'm coming down Seddon. Um, and this guy in a souped-up Mazda something or other jumps around me and overtakes me and cuts him to cross. And I'm like, dude, really? I hope your tire blows out. (laughs) Right? Like, seriously, I hope the steel wheel locks and you just veer into a house somewhere. I was so angry. 
And I'm trying to be really good because I've got my sister and brother-in-law in the car and I'm a pastor, right? And I'm like, I'm not angry. I'm not angry. I'm not driving, attacking. I'm not, I'm not being, nope, nope, nope. I'm, and I, I, I watched him the whole way, right? And he came up to another roundabout and he went off that way and I'm looking, uh, what's the number plate, you know? When I read this, I'm not just hammering you guys, I'm hammering myself. And I can hear God and he's what are you angry about? What's your problem? What is your problem? Um, back in the book of Joshua, Joshua's got the Israelites. They're coming into the promised land. God's told them, kill everyone, destroy everything. It's really hard stuff to preach on, believe me. You know, and, and they get to the point, this is the first thing they're about to attack. They're about to attack you know, um, Jericho. And as he's coming up to it, this is what happens right before. When Joshua was near the town of Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a sword in hand. And Joshua went up to him and demanded, are you friend or foe? Neither one, he replied. I'm the commander of the Lord's army. At this, Joshua fell with his face to the ground in reverence. I'm at your command, Joshua said. What do you want your servant to do? Now, there's one word in here, this response, that doesn't sit well with me. He says this, neither one. Why? That wasn't an option. There's only two options there. You friend or foe? There was no third option. Where did this neither one come from? Frankly, if I were Joshua and someone said neither, you're a foe, right? I don't know, maybe it's just the way we Aussies think. <laughs> Murs already like, what? What did he say? Kathy understands me. <laughs> Neither one. I, I don't get it. That, that doesn't work for me. You're either for or against. You can't sit on the fence with this. I'm going into battle. I'm doing what God's commanded me to do. Why does he say neither one? Because God doesn't take any pleasure in this. We Christians think we've got the hold on God. It's like kids who love their parents, but they want to tell their other kids, their other brothers and sisters, that their parents only love them. You had kids like that? Right? It's, we Christians do that, right? Well, God only loves us. Why? Because we're saved. But God loves everyone. He created everyone with the same amount of love, and he died on that cross with the same amount of love for everyone. He doesn't pick sides. And so when it comes to Jonah, it's the same issue here. Grace is so amazing that if people can just turn to me, wow, I will forgive them. Why can't you? The Christian faith is a call to powerlessness. We let God deal with this. We talk servanthood, but we seek masterhood. The problem with the road to Canossa is the age-old problem where we're the servants of God who want to master everything around us so that we don't have to worry about things, so that people just do what we want them to do and be the way they should be. That's not love. How's it worked with your kids doing that? It's 
difficult, isn't it? That's not love. And that's not what grace is about. And that's the challenge. Right now, I feel like we're back on that road to Canossa. Where we can influence the world. Some sects of Christianity today bemoan the loss of Christian values in culture. They long for the days when America was, or when New Zealand was, a Christian nation, and they ignore the fact that it never actually was. They feel the only way to gain influence is to gain positions of power, but a secularized culture is not the biggest threat to Christianity. Power is, unless the church in America rethinks its influence, and I say the church in New Zealand, rethinks its influence, a desire for power will kill Christianity. In their book, um, The Way of the Dragon or The Way of the Lamb, these guys say this. They say, in the kingdom of God, the ends do not justify the means. As Dallas Willis has said, we're not just called to do Jesus' things, but to do them Jesus' way. As such, the means matter in the kingdom. And I think that's the challenge. When you pick up your Bibles and you read about the life of Jesus, he doesn't say one negative thing about the Roman culture. Augustus Caesar, the emperor God, not a word. He's challenging his own people who should know better. And with all the power and might that he had, all the power and might that he had, he chose none of that. He let it all go and died on a cross. When he was tempted by the devil, three times the devil challenged him. And all three times it's about power. Look, you can usher in your kingdom. I mean, is there something wrong when tell the stone to become bread? Sure, the second part, you know, you worship me, that's a bad thing, okay? Last thing, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down from here. The angels will, ca- will stop you from hitting the ground. These are all power things. But Jesus refused to allow this power to usher in the kingdom. Servanthood and sacrifice was what he did. And that's what we're called to Grace is an amazing thing, but it's also a changing thing. When you read on about Jonah, it doesn't seem like he's really understood the whole picture of this, but Jonah just left. You know, God's like, why are you angry? What's your problem? But he just left. He went out of the city of the east and sat down in the sulk. He put together a makeshift shelter of of leafy branches and sat there in the shade to see what happened to the city because he really wanted that city to burn, right? He really wanted it gone. God arranged for a broadleaf tree to spring up and it grew over Jonah to cool him off and get him out of his angry sulk. And Jonah was pleased and enjoyed the shade and life was looking up. But then God sent a worm and by dawn the next day, the worm had bored into the shade tree and it withered away. And then the sun came up and God sent a hot blistering wind from the east and the sun beat down on Jonah's head and he started to faint and he prayed to die. I'm better off dead. He's a bit of a drama queen, isn't he? Then Then God said to Jonah, What right do you have to get angry about this shade tree? Jonah said, plenty of right. It made me angry enough to die. Holy moly. You'd think he would have learned. 
the whole three chapters beforehand, he experienced God's grace. But it never changed him. It did nothing for him. Absolutely nothing. Grace is a changing thing. It's, it's a thing that has got to, it's got to impact you. It's got to have, oh, he's fine. We can. <laughs> it, it's got it's to change you. And if it doesn't, then I've got to ask, what's going on with you? Because for Jonah, it didn't. He was saved in the belly of a whale when he should rightfully be dead. And yet, yet, thank you, God, for saving me, but go kill those people because we don't like them. Grace is an amazing thing. It's a changing thing, and it's also an eternal thing. This is who God is, and that's who he's calling us to be. I'll end it up really quick because we've gone past our time. But God says this, what is this? How is it you can, that you can change your feelings from pleasure to anger overnight about a mere shade tree that you did nothing to get? You neither planted or watered it. It grew up one night and it died the next night. So why can't I likewise change what I feel about Nineveh from anger to pleasure? This big city of more than 120,000 childlike people who, who don't know, yet know what, right from wrong to say nothing of the innocent animals. And that's where the book ends. It's the most weirdest way to end a book in the Bible. It just ends on this question. What right do you have? The generosity of God displeased Jonah exceedingly. He slashed with angry prayer at the graciousness of the Almighty. I told you so, he screamed. I knew that you were... What you would do, you dirty forgiver, you bless your enemies and show kindness to those who despise, despitefully use you. I would rather die than live in a world with a God like you. And don't try to forgive me either. And Jonah stalked off to his shaded seat and waited for God to come around to his way of thinking. And God is still waiting for a host of Jonas in their comfortable houses to come around, come around to his way of loving. We don't need to go to Canossa, people. We don't need to sit on a hill and wait for God to do what we want him to do. It's us that needs to come around to his way of loving. Now, in saying all this, I'm not saying you shouldn't vote and you shouldn't have preferences. Or, and that's not the point. What I will challenge you, though, on is if you're separating your secular life from your spiritual life, then I'd love to have a discussion with you about that. Because God owns you wholly, not just a part of you, not just when you check out to go to work or when you're behind the vehicle of a car. My life is forfeit. That's your challenge this morning. That was an easy one, right? Let's just ask the music team to come up. Let me pray for you. Look, it's hard <laughs> to be human. It's hard 
especially for those of us who have a bit of a Latino blood in them in the year, the emotions tend to kind of rile us up. Sometimes you don't need to be Latino to be riled up. And for some of us, we're quite happy to separate what we do in some parts of our lives, maybe not allowing God in and justifying it. Challenge I have for you this week, and my prayer for you this week is that you understand that God is wholly interested in you, not just a part of you. He doesn't want just the, here, take this, God, I'll keep the rest. He wants every bit of you. Father God, thank you for your grace, the grace you've shown Jonah, the grace you've shown Nineveh, the grace you've shown us. May we, may we show that same grace to those around us and that through that grace they may see and know there is a God that loves them, that there's more to this life than just the mundane, the secular. Help us, Lord, to be your people, full of grace. May we come around to your way of loving. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Hey, we're going to sing a song all about that amazing grace. What a... Um...